We've been to all four corners of Britain in our quest to interview the great and good of entertainment. Comics, actors, writers, politicians, singers, dancers and choreographers. It doesn't matter who they are. They've all given me their own take on the world they live in and have, in their own way, helped to define what makes Britain great. So join me and my assistants as we get another insight into the marvellous and enigmatic world of showbiz here on Beyond the Title. Writer, broadcaster and cultural commentator Emma Freud was born into the world of literature with her father being the eminent politician and broadcaster Sir Clement Freud. Making her television debut presenting LWT's The Six O'Clock Show from 1986, Freud gained her reputation for her smooth journalistic style and in 1990 secured her own BBC Two afternoon chat show, Plunder, which celebrated her guests' best moments in a frank interview setting. From January 1994, she inherited the famous lunchtime slot on BBC Radio One, which later became Joe Wiley's lunchtime social. Yet perhaps her biggest achievement is contributing to the international charity Comic Relief with her partner Richard Curtis, which has since become a British institution, raising over £1 billion for good causes, both in the UK and around the world. I caught up with the creative powerhouse to talk family, charity and her recollections on a highly successful career in the arts. Ladies and gentlemen, Miss Emma Freud. We'll get on to the highlights of your career in a moment, but having been doing Beyond the Title for over five years, I'm fascinated by those figures from famous families. Obviously, everyone knows the name Freud, but what effect did this have on your childhood? And do you believe that academia is in the genes? Straight in with a cracking question, Josh. Thank you. Um, do you know, I should probably have done some therapy on this exact subject to work out how to respond to the Freud question. <clears throat> because uh, I don't really know the answer. But when I was little, we had a very weird relationship with the name Freud in that my dad um, didn't wasn't happy with anyone ever mentioning Sigmund Freud in his presence. It was his grandfather. And uh, I think he was so troubled by growing up as the grandson of this sort of legendary figure that he just, it was just a no-go area. So no one ever talked about Freud. There were no books about Freud in our house. If anybody mentioned Freud, there was a sort of intake of breath. And so all of us five kids all grew up without any understanding and actually sort of a deep embarrassment about this, you know, substantial relation that we had. Um, And as I've got older, um, I sort of tried to unpick that a little bit. But I still feel a bit odd about it, even feeling odd talking to you about it now that, you know, my dad wouldn't approve. Um, so there was that. Then my fat, all my siblings are very kind of high powered. And I always grew up as the least academic and the least intelligent and the least funny and the least witty and the least everything. So I was my nickname when I was a kid was fat and ugly. That was a great thing to grow up with. Thank you very much, Matthew Freud, for my brother for giving me that one. And um, so my expectation as a kid, I always knew they were going to go off and do extraordinary things, but I wanted to be a personal assistant. That was my, the sum of my ambition. I wanted to be someone who held a clipboard. 
Um, and then those ambitions change as I got older. But certainly as a kid, there was no feeling of like, I'm going to I'm going to make my mark on this world. I'm going to carry on this family tradition. There was none of that. It was just like if I could be a PA, my my dreams would be well and truly done. Um, and then as I've got older, I don't know, I feel a lot about it still. My kids, I'm not married to my partner Richard but when we had our four children I very much wanted to give them his name not mine I just thought Freud is a big old name to carry around with you all your life so they are they are Scarlett Jake Charlie and Spike Curtis and I'm happy about that so does that answer your question in any way it's a complicated one (laughs) so in 1986 you secured your first presenting role on ITV's The Six O'Clock Show alongside Michael Aspel, Chris Tarrant and Danny Baker how do you think TV's attitude towards magazine TV shows has changed since that time? Well, there's no messing about with you, is there? Um, it, it feels like a dinosaur to me now. I mean, I know we still have magazine shows. The one show is still fantastically popular and still, you know, loved and, and, and doing great work. But that, the, that six o'clock show genre of of you know very light news and very light chat which it was Mm. I think those days in that format it feels like when I tell my kids about it not that they're interested but when I do they're Mm. it it, it sounds to them like a very unappealing (laughs) tv show that they would never watch um I adored it it was my I'd been working in telly but in kids telly on cable in those days for quite a few years and had learned how to present to some extent. And that was my first broadcast job. And I, I, you know, I had a clipboard. I mean, what can I say? I was in my, was in my head. and I, yeah. And I was interviewing people and reporting on things. Looking back, I don't know how I had the confidence to sit on a sofa wearing a short skirt and too much makeup and give my opinion on things that have been happening in the news. Feels like, I mean, I wouldn't do that now if you paid me Elon Musk's yearly salary. Um, At the time, you know, as a 24-year-old, I was in, I was just in heaven. And also it was the years before mobile phones, but our unit, our filming unit had a mobile phone. It was this big, literally the size of um, a a shoebox. And I lived on it. I walked up and down the street between different locations and shoots on the phone to my friends going, I'm on a phone that hasn't got a wire. Justin, when he was researching for this interview, he watched the last ever six o'clock show on YouTube. <laughs> on a boat somewhere. Just that was. <laughs> and I was awful. And I'm so mortified you saw it. And I apologize. <laughs> It's on YouTube, so (laughs) (laughs) we we won't link it or anything. In the same year as that, though, together with your husband, Richard Curtis, you created the internationally renowned charity Comic Relief. 
To what extent was that a direct response to Michael Burke's iconic 1984 report from Ethiopia, which resulted in Live Aid? So the setting up of Comic Relief was completely connected to both the Michael Burke Ethiopia documentary, Well Spotted, and also to Bob Geldof um, and mid-year create... Oh, hang on, it's my alarm telling me that I need to be doing your interview. <laughs> Um, to the, yeah, to doing, setting up Live Aid. Um, I didn't, I wasn't there at the very beginning. I love that, you know, if that's the way it, it feels now because I've been there for so long, but actually I didn't join Comic Relief until it had been going for a year or even two. Uh, I think I joined for the second Red Nose Day. Um, and I only joined, I'm going to be totally honest with you, Josh, which I would not want to do anything but... I only joined it because I'd met Richard Curtis, who did found it together with a woman called Jane Tewson. Um, but I met him and I really fancied him. And so I thought if I can hang around the office and do mm. charitable work and be useful, then I may get to spend a bit more time with him. So the first year that I was there, I was you know, answering mail and and sticking envelopes and doing anything I could just to be useful, but getting to know Richard. And then um, we began getting out together after a couple of years and now I'm sort of executive producer. So I literally slept my way to the top in that job. Absolutely <laughs> no question. Apart from raising such a staggering amount of money, over £1 billion for worthwhile charities, Comet Relief has also been responsible for countless hours of entertainment. How do you think Comic Relief has changed the entertainment landscape and pushed some of the boundaries of light entertainment? I love that you think we might have done. Um, I'm very proud that Comic Relief and James Corden together began Carpool Karaoke. The very first ever Carpool Karaoke was George yeah. Michael in his yeah. car on a Comic Relief sketch. Yeah. So there have been a few landmark moments like that. And I think Ali G's most viewed moment was the moment when he... Um, Sasha Baron Cohen interviewed Posh and Bex um, for Comic Relief live in the studio and he was incredibly disrespectful to them and that's you know I think that cemented um, his position there a little bit. Um, in I mean it's a it's a it's a curious genre getting um, you know the mixture of very hard-hitting emotional fundraising films and as hard-hitting as we can possibly muster cutting edge comedy going side by side, hand in hand. It's been a long time now. And I think everyone's ready for a change in that. And we think, I think Comic Relief, which has always tried to reinvent itself um, as the decades have gone by. I think, you know, I was really proud of this year's show, but I am sure by next year's show, we will hopefully have pushed the boat a little bit further in all sorts of ways. Um, so, you know, it's something that we are always trying to reinvent. But I think there have been moments where certain um, certain comedic decisions that we've taken, as well as fundraising decisions, but certainly in the comedic line of things, it, it has it, it's 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 nudged against the door of of, you know, of the status quo, or maybe pushed it a little bit, you know, having celebrities alongside the um the comedians so you know having Bono alongside Ricky Gervais with Bono mm. trying to convince him that he should come out to Africa and spend time in one of the projects and it turned out they were in the corner of a studio set 
And Bono had just mocked it all up in order to save himself having to uh, go to the bother of going for Africa. You know, that sort of stuff is is a healthy anarchism. Mm. <laughs> Just said he went to the first comic relief that wasn't at TV Centre. How did it feel moving away from there? Did you? Did we meet there, Josh? No, was it the one at L Street? No, it was the one at the O2. Oh, crikey, that yeah, blimey. Uh, that was a that was a mighty year, <laughs> the O2 year. Uh, it was very strange moving away from TV Centre. It had been a very safe space. I mean, always when you change the format or you change, sorry, it's my dog in the background, or you change the, um, you know, the venue or the team or anything, you get ripples throughout the production of something. And that year, the O2, the place that we were at the O2, it wasn't the main venue, it was a, it was a side venue, was really tough, really hard logistically to get around that um I remember Ed Sheeran performed and he had to stop halfway through and go back to the beginning because acoustically it was kind of a very odd venue to be in my main memory of that night I mean all the Red Nose Day nights are sort of the worst nights of mine and Richard's lives because they are so difficult to handle and manage emotionally and artistically and technically and we always get to the end of the evening and sort of burst into tears, <laughs> wishing we'd done certain <laughs> things differently or remember to say thank you to that person who we didn't get to see when they came on stage before they left. Or, you know, it's sort of it's a it's a tough one. And you look at the money coming in and you're always thinking, if we made that edit a little bit quicker, might we have raised more money from that moment in the film or if we cast that differently or, you know, it's they're all it they're 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 amazing nights for almost everybody except for Richard and I who just the stakes feel so high and the jeopardy is so high that their places are pain but my main memory from the O2 night was that I interviewed my goddaughter to the man she's about to marry that night and that was a pretty great achievement amazing Josh was sat right behind Ed Sheeran, so he had a good little view. One of the better views, I suppose. You'd mentioned the, the logistical challenges there. Josh's next questions actually were is asking about those challenges encountered when you took Comic Relief to America. What sort how how did you know what sort of difficulties did that pose? Well, I'm in America now as I speak to you and we've got our Red Nose Day in 29 days. We are only about 29 days out from the Red Nose Day in Britain. So personally, it's been tough because it, it's double the yeah. amount of work that certainly Richard has to do. I'm, I'm less involved than he is in the America ones. Um, it's 
it's completely different here you know they have they're a very philanthropic country and they have they give a huge amount of their income not a huge amount but they you know it's a real tradition to give some of your income and in your will to pass it on to charitable causes but the charitable causes they tend to choose tend to be academic so there's a lot of money that goes into the school systems and into the college systems um and although there is a lot of philanthropy in terms of poverty which is what our area is it felt harder to break into that because everyone's kind of got their set thing that they give to um but having said that the first year that we did it here which I can't remember how many years ago it was now eight was it um we they the red nose sales were phenomenal the celebrity support instantly was really incredible and blew our socks off the support that we got from NBC who were the broadcasters our version of the BBC over here is the NBC and they've been incredibly supportive we sell our red noses through Walgreens which is a huge I mean one of the biggest retailers in America but they put it's run by a Scottish guy and he'd grown up with red nose day and he's absolutely embedded it into their system here so we got very lucky there similarly at NBC it was a British guy who commissioned the show who knew Red Nose Day from the UK so I think we've taken the legacy or a little bit of the legacy mm-hmm. here with us and that's really facilitated and mm-hmm. a lot done um, but it's not easy I mean it's 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 known now and it's got it's got we've already a week into our campaign here and the money is twice as much as it was last year already just on Red Nose Day sales and support through um, the retailers and the different products that give us a percentage of their cost during Red Nose Day week. But it's not easy. It's not been a walk in the park. No. Um, so we'll go uh, back a little way now, back more specifically to your career. 1990, you secured your own BBC Two chat show, Plunder, in which you look back at noteworthy individual careers through clips What's the hardest thing about interviewing someone on television? The hardest moment on Plunder, just on that one specifically, was when we did, we had to do one of the shows on the same day as England were through to the final of European Cup. It wasn't the World Cup, it wasn't 1960. Yeah, but it was a big big football match and because of that the studio audience that we had was tiny but we did it anyway and my guest I think was a woman who wasn't a particularly big football fan and she didn't mind and I certainly didn't so we were still able to do it but I remember there was one question that I asked her and it drew a sharp intake of breath from all of the camera crew and I thought what have I done what have I said that was so wrong and then I realized that someone had just scored and they were all watching the match on their monitors rather than actually watching <laughs> What they were filming. <laughs> that was a tricky one. Um, oh, interviewing on TV is is has been my bread and butter now for thirty six years, and it has it's changed massively over that time. Um, I've learned so much through that time, but and it's a permanent learning curve because the expectation within interviews changes what people are interested in changes you know I used to be terribly interested in in the notion of fame 
And I think I've spent so much in my life now through the work that I do and through comic relief dealing with famous people that actually that notion no longer interests me. And I don't know that it massively interests the public because there's so many outlets you can find out anything you need to know about someone who's well known. So, you know, the questions change as the years change and different things. But always talking to people now about their mission and their purpose in life and what they're trying to change through the work that they do, which are questions that didn't feel relevant um, to me when I was in my 20s. And they're the only thing I'm interested in now. So, you know, it's a very interesting process. You can tell a lot about an interviewer themselves from the questions they choose to ask people that they're with. I'm learning a lot about you, Josh, through the questions that you're asking me. I can see, you know, the kind of, you know, your story in, in, in those questions and, and what you're interested in in my career. And I find that interesting. Um, yeah. But it's it's a great, it's a great privilege, I think, to be allowed to do interviews with people publicly, especially when they're long ones. Some of my favourite ones that I do actually are at book festivals, literary festivals. I do a lot at Cheltenham Literary Festival. And those tend to be an hour long, which is just a joy with an audience who've all actively bought into the person that you're interviewing they genuinely want to be they're not they're not turning on their tvs going oh i hate this bloke let's see what he's going to say they're there because they've spent the money to come and listen because they're interested so you get an amazing dynamic between the stage and the audience um and the feedback is great and you get part intimacy and part performance and it's it's just a very heady mix and i think some of my favorite interviews I've ever done have been in that kind of format David Attenborough I did in that in that festival a few years ago and it was honestly I couldn't believe that I even got paid for it I would have paid you know so much money just for the privilege of sitting there one of the interviews that Josh wanted to ask you about um is Spike Milligan um everyone who's ever had the pleasure of interviewing Spike Milligan has the scars to prove it how do you set about gauging the interview to preempt his unpredictable behaviour? I didn't get it right, Josh. I'm sure you saw that in the clip if you watched it. Um, he was really, you know, he, it, Spike Milligan's thing was whatever you don't expect him to say, he's going to say. Um, he will never say, you know, you can have researched him as much as you like. But he will, he, I don't think he ever gave the same answer twice. And he would never, he didn't play that game. He played a totally different game and it was a brilliant game. But it was not a game that I could decipher the rules of. And I don't think anybody particularly could, um, which is why he was such a legend and why it was so great to have a chance to, you know, do that interview before he died. Um, he was magnificent. Uh, I think he thought I was pretty pointless, but I thought he was extraordinary. Um, and I think I did something. I learned this from watching Letterman doing interviews in America, that the funnier the person you have on, the less you need to say. You know, you cannot match them. So you just have to sit back and facilitate them to do their own thing and just play the straight guy as quietly and as unobtrusively as you possibly can and the less you can do in those situations the more enjoyable it's going to be for the audience because you will, will not be getting in the way of someone's talent yeah so um next question moving on to radio not january 1994 you inherited the famous lunchtime slot on radio one 
bit of a turbulent period for the station. How important was your role in engaging with that 18 to 24 demographic? That was a really hard time for me because I'd done a radio show for GLR, which is Greater London Radio, which was what's now Radio London. And Chris Evans had been my producer. I'd never worked in radio before and he'd never worked in London before and and he'd never produced before. So he produced me and it was an amazing experience. He's a huge talent and he was very generous in the way that he taught me how to be a radio presenter. Very, very tough to work for, but really rewarding. Um, and on the back of that, I was then offered the job at Radio One. But when I went into Radio One, it had been the old school, had, the old guard had had Radio One for a very long time. You know, mm. the Davey Travis and the um, Tony Blackburns and the, you know, it, it was that era. And the new boss came in and wanted to really change it and make it much more focused towards the 18 to 24 year olds and much more dynamic and much more interactive and much more talk and a bit less music and much more modern music and all of this. And I was the first appointee under that new regime with the lunchtime show. And they they didn't, apart from my boss, and maybe some of the listeners, nobody else really wanted me to be there. Certainly Radio 1 didn't want me there. Um, and the other DJs didn't want me there. And they could see as I came in that that, that they, they could see that change was happening, which meant that everyone felt their jobs were being threatened in some way. That, you know, if the lunchtime show had already gone to someone who was completely different to the existing lineup then who was going to be next and who was going to be after that so I was I sort of got a lot of the um the wrath that was being felt by the by the old team towards uh, the new team that were on their way in and I was a bit like the canary that gets sent down the mines Mm. so it was very tricky and it was very difficult to open your microphone for two hours every day live in front of you know many millions of listeners not feeling massively confident because the vibe in the in the building was you know who the fuck is she yeah um so it was tricky it was very tricky but I did a year and I'm proud of the show that we did and um I then got pregnant and left to have my daughter great um so as a journalist you've written for most of the significant broadsheets. How do you think social media has changed the purpose for written press? Wow, I think social media has changed everything. I mean, can you imagine a world without it now? Um, It's massively changed the role of journalism, I think. I think, I think, you now, in order to cut it as a journalist, you have to be bringing something so intelligent to the table, something so well-researched, well-informed, well-understood. It isn't enough to have an opinion. You know, the first column I ever did was for, I can't remember the paper now, Today. Was that the name of a paper years back? I think it was called Today. 
Um, and I did an opinion column in that. And in a way that was sort of like social media, like, oh, have you seen that? It's not very good, is it? Oh, this is great. What about this? And I loved it when that happened. I mean, those are just three tweets now, whereas in those days I was paid to write a whole page and it was printed. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's gone. And the, the, the you have to have a skill and you have to either be brilliant in politics or in world news or in wellness or in medicine or you know it it is it isn't enough just to have an active brain you need a skill set um and in a way that's fantastic because it does sort the wheat from the chaff I write less and less and really now I only write about things that I really do know about so I have a column interviewing chefs and that's food which has always been my history and um uh interviewing long interviews which is you know all I've been doing my entire life so you know I do have a skill set that I can bring to the table there give me a different type of person and I would no longer be qualified for that job 25 years ago I would have been qualified for I think any writing job in a way because it was such a different landscape but I do welcome that I really do you know opinions live on social media and journalism journalism is now really about knowledge yeah you mentioned there about the about the um, about the food side of the of what you do. Josh, I wanted to ask about um, about how sort of you got into that a little bit, and also how important you think that that relationship is um, with food and people in terms of preserving relationships. And it's a side of journalism and sort of broadcast, I suppose, which is kind of designed to preserve and encourage relationships beautiful question um it's it's huge to me and it's become more and more so I mean my dad was a chef and that was the world that I grew up in um and I studied uh cooking under Sky Gingell for a few years um which was a massive um experience for me but and and I've been writing about it now for seven years I think I've had a column about either food culture or um chefs um and to me it's kind of everything I turned 60 this year and um you'll both get this when you get to 60 it's a really extraordinary age I wasn't expecting it to happen like this but I think what happens at 60 is your friendship group look at you and go you're not dead yet but you probably will be quite soon and so we sort of need Mm. to say the stuff now that you need to hear before you're too old and deaf um, to hear those words so you get this kind of summy uppy kind of response from your friends you know the letters I got and the cards that I got and the conversations that I had during those few days were really transformative for me and and what it turned out was that the 31 years I've spent at Comic Relief no one massively mentioned that the thousands and thousands of articles that I've written nobody mentioned them the um, TV work and the radio work didn't seem to come up very often, but what everybody talked about was my kitchen table and the feeling of community and family and support and friendship and love and affection and warmth and openness and lack of judgment 
that you get round a table with food that someone has cooked for you and given you and sat down and opened a bottle of wine with you and bought a cup of tea. And it seemed that that was, if, if I've made any impact, it's been on my friend's stomachs rather than on the world. Mm-hmm. And I'm okay with that. I'm really okay with that. And I do think food has that very central role of humanity and kindness built into its DNA. And I feel kind of honoured to be able to cook for people quite often because it's you're you're occupying a place which is right at the centre of their heart and their stomach and their head and their conversation and their communication. So yeah, food is kind of is big like that with me. Yeah, Josh said, obviously, coming out of various lockdowns, depending on where you were, that's the one thing that we all sort of missed. And then I suppose the journalism side of that is a nice thing for people to read and sort of reminisce, I suppose, in those moments and look forward to for the future. I think that's right. And I think I think writing about about food in that sense, you are you know in a way you can write about anything through the prism of food it's like a lens that allows you to you know look at the world you know I mean I've interviewed Syrian refugee chefs who have used food as their entry into society and as a way of connecting people in this country with their home country and you know you you actually you get the whole world you get the whole world that way yeah so looking back at your career What's your proudest achievement? Winning the Bake Off. I think. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't the whole series of the Bake Off. It was one episode of the Comic Relief does the Bake Off. And obviously, um, I I shouldn't even have been on it. But I was producing the show with with Love Productions. And, and I snuck myself into onto it because I was um. so cute to do it but I did win my round and Mary Berry did hug me and (laughs) all did say that although my brownies tasted great they looked like shit which was (laughs) I'd like on my so lastly what's next for Emma Freud well, I've had a very unexpected year, lads, because I we came to America in August for a year, um, partly to do film work and Red Nose Day America work. And um, my son lives out here and two of my other kids came out with us. And it's, you know, it's been an amazing year here. And I wasn't 100% sure what I was going to do, apart from my columns and the Radio 4 show that I do while I was here. And in that way that that you can sometimes, you know, catch a moment, it turned out that what I needed to do in my life at this stage, <laughs> train my dog, yeah. was to start learning again. I realised when we got here that I've been giving it out for about 40 years and I needed to get something back in. 
And it sort of ties in with what I was saying earlier about needing a skill set and needing knowledge in order to function now, you know, much more so than people did before social media. So what I've done for the last year is I've gone back to college. Um, I've been studying at UCLA, the University um, of California, Los Angeles, that's what it stands for, um, and studying all the things that most um, I find most compelling in the world. And it's been incredible. It's been an absolute revelation. Um, you know, I hadn't been at school since I was 22. And um, I hadn't sat in a classroom since that, you know, the day I left college. And it's very, very different when you really choose it as an older person, because you hear stuff in different ways, you want to know different things. And it feels like it feels like an absolute gift. It feels like a drug. You know, I spend the mornings doing my work and my yeah. admin. And then in the afternoons, I have my classes. And I, I it's like, it's, it's, it's so exciting to be allowed to learn in this way. So what's in the future is I have no idea because I certainly wasn't expecting this present. Mm. Um, I can't imagine that I won't go on trying to learn stuff when I go back to England in June. Um, and maybe go back to college in the UK as well if I can but um, but I think at 60 having not expected this I have no idea what the next decade is going to be like now and I'm really good with that that feels like quite an exciting place to be you know I might become a stripper without thinking (laughs) (laughs) yeah Justin, if you're going to do that, make sure you do it for comic relief. (laughs) (laughs) That would be the end of donations, wouldn't it? You two are a great double act. I'm loving this. Thanks. We've we've had some practice. We've been I've been Josh's carer for nearly 12 years now. So have you? Yeah, we've um we've had a bit of practice. Wow. But um, that's all our questions. So thank you very much for your time. We really appreciate it. Real pleasure. Thank you. You've been on Josh's little dream list for a while. So um, thanks very much. I'm really flattered to hear that. Josh is a huge comic relief red nose day massive fan so we have been yeah both yourself and richard are are on josh's you are on the list so thanks very much listen i know richard really well and if you want me to put in a word about him doing one give him a nudge and give him a bit of silent treatment if he says no (laughs) we'll see how we go consider it done thank you to our guest for being the subject of another beyond the title interview If you liked this, why not browse the website and see if there's anything else that takes your fancy. Don't forget to like our Facebook page to receive updates on forthcoming interviews and to see more information about me and what I do. Thanks again and hopefully see you next time.